Hello and welcome to this special Parapanis Assembly event where we're going to look at the recent budget changes to taxation and in particular those nasty stealth taxes and what Parapanis can do about them. I'm really pleased we're working again with Utmost on these videos and we're joined by Steve Sayer. So Steve, if people don't know you, please introduce yourself. Yeah, good, good afternoon. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm Steve Sayer. I'm the Technical Sales Manager for Utmost International. Uh, hopefully by now most of you will have heard of Utmost, most of you will deal, be dealing with Utmost. But for those that haven't, uh, we are an international uh, insurance company, uh, obviously specialising in uh, investment bonds and the investment flexibility and potential tax planning opportunities that they can give. Brilliant. Thank you, Steve. It's great to have you along again. Now, there's one hour CPD available for this session, and we'll yep. put a link to that in the description below. If you've got any questions, we're doing this a bit different this time, so you're watching the recording, but any questions, you can post them on our website on the Big Tent, and there'll be a link to that in the description, as well as a link to download a copy of the slides, which brings me nicely on to what's on the screen right now, which are the slides that Steve's put together, and Steve is going to take us through these. Yeah, well, thanks, Richard. Uh, so, yeah, so what we're going to do today is is we're going to look at some of the changes that happened, uh, well, later last year, and of course, uh, up to and including the budget of the 15th of March this year. Uh, and what we were starting to do, we were starting to look at the changes, how it impacted income tax for individuals, but then capital gains tax, living on corporation tax, because that's becoming increasingly important, and we'll see why as we go through the slides. And a little bit on inheritance tax as well, because at first sight, you think, well, nothing happened with inheritance tax. But of course, in reality, because of some of the things that's going on out there, it did. And a little bit more of that later. So if we look, look at the agenda then, Richard, um, basically what we've got is looking at these potential changes. And then I suppose, if you like, looking at how an investment bond can help. Um, and and uh, so the aim of the session is around about an hour. Um, but we'll see how we go and what questions Richard has along the way. So where's a good place to start? Well, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because, I mean, if, if I was asked to actually outline what happened last year, I, I, I wouldn't know where to begin. And it's only with the help of a slide like this that actually starts to put it into perspective. Because last year was really a tremendous year in terms of changes, in terms of volatility in that marketplace. Um, you think of it, at the start of the year, things were relatively quiet. Um, in terms of, you know, we, we had a Bank of England governor, Andrew Bailey, who was forecasting a temporary blip, end of inverted commas, if you like, uh, in inflation, but then it was going to settle down. Of course, this was following all the quantitative easing that had been going on to get the country through the pandemic. It's all the funding for the furlong schemes, all the pent-up demand that had been building up in the economy. And of course, coupled with that, strict restrictions on the supply with the shutdown of some of the economies through the world, typically China uh, being one of them. Even so, um, at the start of the year, things were very quiet. And then, of course, everything started to happen, didn't it? Inflation started to creep up. Coupled with that, of course, we had the Russian, well, was it an invasion of Ukraine? I forget what the actual official wording was now, but you know what I mean. And then, but nothing that was going to give a hint of the chaos that was going to hit the UK as the, world, as the year went on. And of course, what I'm talking about there is not only the impact of inflation increasing to, well, food inflation up to what, 15, 16, 17? even 18 percent uh, but also of course events leading to the ultimate resignation of boris johnson and then of course to the even more volatile event of the appointment of liz trust 
as well, I'll say uh, Prime Minister, but uh, probably temporary to Prime Minister, as it turned out, because one can recall that famous uh, headline in one of the tabloids out there about the letters from Liz Truss, which was going to last longer. It's all history now. But the appointment of Liz Truss uh, was quickly followed by her subsequent appointment of Quasi Quartang. And what happened after that was this infamous mini budget, which started to focus on this strategy of, a, of a generating high growth, mainly by lowering taxes. And of course, the problem with that is that caused the markets to take fright. Because effectively, high growth, but lowering the additional rate of tax, in fact, abolishing the additional rate of tax, uh, additional rate of tax, well, the market was saying, well, how can this be funded? And the markets did take fright. The sterling rate actually dropped on one Monday morning, so remember it well, it down to a dollar rate of $1.03 to the pound. Now, subsequently, it has recovered, and as at today, I think we're talking about 124. So it does show how low it went. And of course, what that was meaning was it meant that um, that the cost of importing goods was increasing. The cost of energy had been increasing with the, of course, a shortage of supply following the invasion of Ukraine, but also, of course, of changes in that dollar rate as well. <laughs> and eventually what happened was... Well, the markets basically decided it couldn't go, long, go on. And faced with a lot of fresh pressure, Liz Truss then uh, sacked Quasi Quartang and basically appointed Jeremy Hunt as her uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer. And basically, then Liz Truss had to subsequently, subsequently resign from office, appointed by Rishi Sunak. And then following a, another autumn statement by Jeremy Hunt, uh, we had several reversals in the terms of the taxes, tax changes that were announced and then effectively led up to the budget of this year. So rather a lot that was happening. But could you go to the next slide then, Richard? So within all that, and within these budget statements, and particularly the ones in autumn, it was designed by the then new Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, to calm the markets, was a situation where these tax decreases that were announced by Quasi Quartang were actually reversed to give stability to the markets. Now, there was a number of measures that were announced uh, 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 back then, but it was all based, I think, or the main base of, of what the changes were happening were based on something that was known, well, something that can define there as stealth taxes. And that is basically a tax that is collected in a way that is not very obvious. So people may not realize that they are paying it. And what I mean by that is taxes that are raised, extra taxes that are raised because many people's tax allowances are not increasing in line with the underlying inflation. And so effectively, as they start earning more money to compensate for some of the ravages of inflation, Effectively, they were paying more taxes, but it didn't feel to them that they were paying more taxes at the time because the personal allowances had stayed exactly where they were. They weren't reduced in actual terms, but the problem was they were reduced very much in real terms. And that, as we'll see going through this presentation, has had a major, major impact on all the taxes that we're considering today, whether it's be income tax, capital gains tax, or inheritance tax. 
And just to take those taxes individually, we'll see, or starting on that right-hand side, the personal income tax. Well, the savings rates, the starting rate fund for savings at £5,000 a year, no change. The stealth tax means that's reducing in real terms, similarly with the personal savings allowance. But perhaps where the major changes did happen in terms of income tax is perhaps not in terms of the stealth tax in this particular instance, but where there was a, a reduction in the threshold for the additional rate of income tax starting to hit the individual. Because of course, the major change there was that that was reduced from, well, a threshold of 150,000 pounds to a dramatically lower threshold of 125,140. Now, okay, well, does that affect a lot of people? Well, it does affect a lot of people because that was also coupled with the fact, of course, and we'll see as we go through this, that savings interest that people were able to earn on their interest in building society accounts, easy access accounts, and so on. And so a dramatic increase as well, not keeping in line with inflation, so they were losing money in real terms, but it meant they were earning more interest and pushing a lot of people into that new additional threshold. And they were looking for solutions. Now, those thresholds have also been, it was announced that they've frozen until tax year uh, 27, 28. In terms of capital gains tax, the big headline, of course, was the reduction in the annual exemption from the current, well, sorry, formerly 12,300 to 6,000 pounds and now to £3,000 uh, in the next tax year. And as I said before, inheritance tax, no changes, so it was all good news. But remember this stealth taxes, these, it, how, how long those nil rate bans have been frozen for inflation? And of course, the big announcement there, well, the announcement that was quietly in the budget, was that those bans have now been frozen additionally up until the year 27-28. Next slide, please, Richard. And I think just, just before we go on to that one, I think it's really good summary slide this one because there's a lot of talk out there about this new investment landscape. Now we've gone from a very benign economy with low inflation, um, low interest rates, steady GDP growth, steady you know, asset growth to something now which is, well, flat returns at best with high inflation, high interest rates. So this whole new investment landscape, but coupled alongside that is this new kind of tax landscape, isn't it? And it's it's just as important to get this right as it is to choose the actual underlying investments when you're working out a good solution. So really timely. Yeah, no, absolutely right. If you can defer these higher rates of tax uh, for as long as possible, at least you're going to be benefited from that, well, the growth on that tax that you're deferring, the tax you're inverted commas saving. So, yes, yeah, so sorry, next slide as well, please. So going back to the headline rates in terms of the income tax, we've already said I think the biggest uh, change there is this change in the additional rate threshold. Um, but there's also been other changes in terms of income tax. Obviously, the personal allowance, basic rate, basic rate band remaining the same. Remember the stealth tax argument there. Uh, but the dividend allowance, again, that was a headline change, wasn't it? Where it's reduced from £2,000 last year to £1,000 this year and then £500 the year after. Now, in terms of tax raise, in terms of tax liability, they're not big changes at the end of the day. I mean, not big changes compared to that, that vastly lowering of the additional rate band as far as income tax is concerned. But what it means, it's going to put an awful lot of more people into the situation where they're going to have to self-assess and potentially pay tax, even though it's a small liability. 
And those reductions in the dividends allowance alone, HMRC have estimated that it is going to affect, right, and this is an astounding figure, 3.2 million individuals this tax year, which will rise to 4.4 million next tax year. Now, those a lot of those people will maybe now have to self-assess for the first time. A lot of those people will maybe then have to incur costs of self-assessment because they maybe you know don't have the ability uh, to be able to complete that self-assessment themselves. So that's an awful lot more people that are either needing advice and help or some alternative investments. It's a little bit of a conspiracy to get people into the system. So, you know, you're hitting a lot of those pensioners have got things on privatisation shares, you know, just floating around. So it's like get everybody in the system for real-time tax. That's what's going on here. Well, they're absolutely right. And then wait, wait till AI start affecting the story as well, Richard. Then it's going to be very interesting. <laughs> Next one. Yeah. So, again, just to recap and have a look at what's happening to those, uh, it, those basic those bands for income tax. So what we do is split spans up into the two years, so this year and the following year. And basically, the difference is, as we can see, is that you've got the dividend allowance, which is half this year and effectively half again next year. And the reason why it's presented like that is one thing that's often forgotten is those allowances actually sit in the bands that they, they, they that, 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 well, they sit in the tax band effectively which means that although you're taxed at a zero rate of tax on those allowances, they're not true allowances in the proper sense of the word. Why? Because they may push other income into that higher or additional rate band. And of course, that's important now because additional rate band's being reduced. And so, again, it has a knock-on effect. Next slide, please, Richard. So, so let's just start looking at a before and after effect here. And what we have in this hypothetical presentation world, we have a potential client here who is earning £150,000. Why £150,000? Well, that's just obviously that was the old threshold for the additional rate band, effectively. So what we're assuming is that he has got non-savings income of £125,140. So again, that's made up completely with the new additional rate band. And he's earning in this particular instance some £24,860 of dividend income. What is the net effect? Well, the net effect, you can compare the two positions, the two tables effectively. And basically what is happening is the dividend allowance has been halved from £2,000 to £1,000. And also, of course, the dividend that he is earning means that apart from that £1,000, everything else is now subject to the additional rate tax on dividends. And as you know, that's 39.35%. So the before and after situation is £50,200 £50, worth of tax on that income compared with the new position of £51,905, i.e. an extra £1,705 purely on this change in the additional rate threshold and the dividend allowance. Next slide, please, Richard, because if we start looking at savings, then it gets a little bit more interesting. Because what you've got with savings is you have got, again, an increase in tax due because of the because of the change in the additional rate tax threshold. And as you can see, 
in a nutshell, it's 2.7% increase on that change alone. But remember the other thing that is happening here behind mm -hmm. the scenes, because of inflation taking off in the background, and again, today's rate, it's, I think it's 8.7% in the UK, you've got higher interest rates on savings accounts. Now, again, at the time of this presentation, it is not impossible to get 4% on instant access savings accounts at the moment. And indeed, if you're locking your money up for a little bit longer term, I mean, nine months, I've certainly seen rates of just over 5% that are attainable. Now, again, comparing that to inflation, you're losing money in real terms. Mm -hmm. But the interest that's generated is now considerably more than what it was. And so what it means is it's likely to push an awful lot more taxpayers, A, into the additional rate tax threshold, and B, of course, that additional rate tax is going to reduce their net savings interest considerably. Next slide, please, Richard. And so basically, if we were to start looking at the history of the Bank of England base rates and the consumer's price index. Then back in March 2018, the CPI inflation was a figure of 2.5%. Base rates were 0.5, which means the net rates of additional rate taxpayer were 0.275%. They paid very little tax. Compare that today, where, as I say, you can get instant access savings rates of 4%, perhaps more, and that was before the last increase in underlying base rates. And you can see how inflation and the and the measures taken to combat inflation is having a very, very big impact upon the savers out there. And they are looking for some form of planning that will help them to reduce that extra tax liability. And remember, it's through no fault of their own. And it's actually through no fault of the decisions that they've made or no fault, no fault of the or, or, no, or not as a result of the good decisions they've been making as investors. It's purely as a result of the increase in interest rates to try and combat a late entry into the, well, made by the Bank of England to try and combat inflation. And so next slide. The, uh, the Bank of England came out and said that we've all just got to get used to being poorer. Uh, and they retracted it after a while, didn't they? But this is one of the reasons why. Um, this, you may think yeah. you're getting more interest on your savings, but the net benefit is actually a lot worse than it's ever been. It's a lot worse, absolutely right. Your, your capital is going down in real terms, I assure you. Yeah, so using money safely, I think, is the risk warning there. <laughs> okay, thank you. Right, next slide. So again, one of the solutions that's coming very, very much to the fore here, of course, is not surprisingly offshore bonds. And the reason why offshore bonds are looking very attractive now is, of course, they're not liable to capital gains tax. And so effectively, it counters, I suppose, this, this element where uh, open-ended investment companies, direct equity shareholdings and so on have been hit with the change to the annual uh, exemption. But perhaps more importantly, and I think a lot more importantly, is because they offer this growth roll-up and thereby offer potentially a vehicle of generating returns that's nearer to the rates of inflation because of its growth roll-up with the ability of the policyholder deciding when and how much and when they want to pay the tax and with that being able to control how much tax is actually paid. Because underlying the offshore bond of course as we know we've seen this slide several times is the vast array of investments that the bond can be linked to. 
whether it's in terms of cash, direct cash holdings, and they could be time uh, accounts as well that generate higher returns, it's up to the individual or the external uh, uh, manager if one is appointed. They could be internal funds, but it also could be GIAs, they, sorry, GIAs, they could be OICs, they could be dividends, it could be shares and so on, it's generating dividends. And why is that important? Well, longer term, when we have inflation in the economy, clients have to take some steps to try and generate growth of their underlying investments to try and combat this, this awful impact of inflation. And history would suggest that the way that that is done is to, is to invest longer term, but invest in equity related investments. The bond gives that obviously options at any time. Now, the other point about inflation is, and again, the advantages of the bond. And I accepted some downsides of this slide you know, before, before, before we go through it. But if we actually to show how a bond can help the individual policyholder combat inflation, well, let's take an example here. And let's assume the investor is investing half a million pounds. And we'll assume he's investing it in two sources. One, as an alternative, into cash. And two, as an alternative, into a bond and basically we we'll assume that if he's investing in cash then that's where it stays if he invests in a bond then he's taking investment advice and decides to invest 50 percent of the bond assets into some equity form of investment to generate hopefully some real rate of return over that longer term period and also a bit into cash as well and so what we have here is we've got the assumptions We've got the net cash return or cash return of 4%. And so, of course, for an additional rate taxpayer, remember those new thresholds, that would mean that their net return is a paltry 2.2%. Now, let's compare that with an investment return of the bond assets. And we'll assume longer term, the equity content is going to give, let's say, a 6% investment return. And we are going to, again, invest 50% in those equities and 50% in cash. And let's assume underlying rate of inflation, not of 10%, not of 8.7, but of only 5%. And so we can see what the results are in the, in the bottom table. The unwrapped cash investment, so that 2.2% per annum net return for the additional rate taxpayer, by the time we're taking off the ravages of those 5% inflation, 10 years down the line, that portfolio is standing at a real loss of £123,000. Obviously, it's not a nominal loss. It's gone up in value. But it's a real loss in the sense that inflation has reduced its spending power. In terms of the bond investment, now again, we're assuming a little bit higher return because we're investing so much in equities, but it's only 50% in equities, 50% in cash. And you can see what the equivalent figure there is. And so the totals is on the same assumptions. If the equities grow at 6% prior of that 50% of the investment in the bond and so on, then in that sense, there will be a real rate of return of some £2,200. Not brilliant, but it shows the impact of actually allowing the investments to grow in a gross roll-up environment. Now, okay, the, the, the downside of this story, of course, is Investing in an offshore bond means at some stage there will tax will be due. 
and that tax might be due at 45%, 40%, who knows? But as a lot of you have been on these calls before, there's lots of ways that that growth, that potential tax rates can be minimized through top slicing relief, of course, through assigning to lower rate taxpayers within the family, potentially. But the important point here is that that growth, that growth return is in the bond and it can stay in the bond and generate future returns or it can be assigned out to individuals. It's the policy holder that is in control of how those benefits are taken. Next slide, please, Richard. And if your ears pricked up, don't forget to mention of top slicing relief. And don't forget, you can go on our website and just search for that. And we've got <laughs> lots of videos featuring Steve covering all those tax calculations. Yes, <laughs> I remember doing them all, I think, Richard. Right, so uh, let's now turn to capital gains tax and go on to the next slide. So again, here, the headline rate, the annual exemption cut to £6,000 for this tax year, and then a further 50% cut for the next tax year to £3,000. So question is, what's the real value of that? People say, well, yeah, the good thing is having an annual exemption because what it means is you can rebase your portfolio. Well, the problem with that, of course, is yes, you can rebase a portfolio, you can save a little bit of capital gains tax, but what is the cost of disinvesting and reinvesting? Because sadly, for so many people who are doing that, the actual costs of undertaking that exercise mean that the actual tax saving is completely wiped out. So it's something to be careful of and something to make, be made worse going forward. So it is estimated, again, from the revenue, that some 260,000 individuals and trusts are now being brought into the scope of capital gains tax for the first time. And again, what that means, of course, is exactly the same as the income, income tax position, self-assessment, declaring the actual gain. And of course, capital gains are a little bit more complex to work out at times, isn't it? You've got to keep a complete track of records. You've got to, again, fill out the capital gains tax portion of the self-assessment return and so on. Not easy for somebody who's not used to that type of transaction. The underlying changes, or the underlying changes where there isn't any, the self-taxes, I suppose, is there's no changes in the capital gains tax rates of 10 and 20%. But of course, there is a change, isn't it, by default? And that change, of course, is the equivalent stealth tax because the basic rate band hasn't increased their income tax, and by implication, it hasn't increased the capital gains tax either. So again, what capital gains the individual is making now is more likely to be taxed at 20% compared to 10%. And of course, as far as trusts are concerned, again, another potential big opportunity as far as the offshore bonds are concerned, for various reasons, more so than what we're going in here to going into today, is of course the trust annual exemption of capital gains tax is half the individuals, which means that it's now standing in today's terms at three thousand pounds, and again, it's going to be halved down to one half thousand pounds from next year. And don't forget, that's the maximum. If the settler has settled more than one trust, then potentially that can be reduced by the number of trusts up to a maximum of five. So for some trusts, it could be as low as £300. Not really worth having, is it? And again, let's start looking at the stealth taxes here again. And let's start looking at this annual exemption, because again, some interesting facts start coming out. The last year the annual exemption was increased was back in 2020, 21. If it had been increased every year since then at, say, 2.5% per annum, which is, you know, 
not an unfair uh, uh, assumption to make, it would have been worth in today's terms some £13,245. If it actually increased in line with the actual consumer price index figure, it would be worth £14,329. But instead of being worth £14,000, it's now actually today 6000 and then 3000 next year. So big changes for some, well, quite a few people. And you think, sorry, just go back on that slide, Richard, because there's one, one thing on there that is interesting, is the actual capital gains tax rates themselves. Because we know we've got two different lots of capital gains tax rates. It's 10, it's 20%. You've heard what I said about the 10% being frozen. It's a stealth tax, etc. But of course, question is, well, might those rates change in the future? And of course, we don't know. But it might surprise many of you to actually um, see this table, that if we go back to 1988, roughly half of that period, capital gains tax and income tax rates were equalised. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen in the future, but bearing in mind that the government does have a problem in terms of funding, well, funding, it, it, it's, 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 it's spending in the UK, in terms of satisfying the markets that any spending is funded, funded on a proper basis, cast your minds back to quasi quartile, and basically who's to say that it will not increase at some stage in the future. Next slide, please, Richard. And so where does we stand with portfolio investments? And of course, as far as clients are now concerned, there's, there's potentially, well, let's say simply two ways of holding investments. They can hold that investments for its portfolio stocks, shares, whether it's portfolio of, uh, of uh, open-ended investment companies directly. And if they hold those investments directly, any interest or dividend that is generated by that portfolio on the left-hand side is automatically taxed on that policyholder at potentially 39.35 or 45% interest rates. And of course, it's more likely they're paying those interest rates because of the changes in the additional rate tax threshold. Again, similarly, in terms of capital gains tax liability, should they appoint an external investment manager or should they even be managing the portfolio themselves? Any changes to the underlying investments that generate a capital gains tax liability will give rise to capital gains tax liability in the hands of the holder. And that is going to be at 10, 20% or potentially even higher as we go along. And remember the annual exemptions. Now, one thing is important here because this is happening to a lot of portfolios. If you hold a portfolio directly and it's generating income in that terms of interest or dividends, but it's also generating capital losses, it's impossible to offset those capital losses against the income that's being generated. Now let's contrast that with a portfolio held on the right-hand side. Exactly the same underlying portfolio is held, this time not directly by the individual, but via his policy holdings in an offshore investment bond. Of course, what that now means that any income that is generated or any capital gains that is generating from the restructuring of the underlying investments is held by the bond and it does not give rise to a tax liability at that point in time. In fact, the only tax liability will happen when the individual policyholder generates a chargeable event gain. And of course, this scenario 
of income generated offsetting against capital gains losses. I mean, we don't want to see that. But as and when it happens, when you think about the offshore bond, because it's a chargeable event gain that's being taxed, you are directly benefiting from that ability to offset that capital loss against income generated. Big advantage going forward. So let's turn our, our minds now to corporation tax liability. And there was a number of changes announced in the statement in the budget, and also the last couple of years as well, ranging from changes to capital allowances, to the annual investment allowance, but next slide please, Richard, but also uh, from the changes in corporation tax, which as you all know, has taken in effect from the 1st of April this year. And the main change that we're talking about here is that increase in corporation tax rate from what is a main rate of 19% up to a main rate now of 25%. The good news is, of course, is if you're a smaller company, then you can still qualify for that 19%. Small company, I mean profits less than £50,000. And there will be a tapering, effectively, of those corporation tax rates <clears throat> up until when your profit level is £250,000 by which time you'll make you'll pay the, 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 the main rate of 25%. So it's quite a considerable increase in the corporation tax rates. Next slide, please, Richard. So where does that impact our clients? Well, it impacts our clients if they are operating close companies. And close companies that are classed as an investment companies compared to a trading company. And basically what we mean there, let's get right to cut, cut to the chase effectively is i suppose these things that's called what family investment companies personal investment companies and effectively what that means a closed company is a co is a company that does not exist wholly or many for trading so company is to exist for investment is called and of course what that means is for closed companies who are investment companies then the main rate of corporation tax is payable i.e on any gains on any interest that they receive, they will be paying corporation tax, not at 19%, but at 25%. Now this is important. And the reason why this is important is we're now coming across cases where a lot of accountants have been recommended family investment companies for as little investment as 300,000 pounds. So it's important to know what the pros, what the cons are, why you would use them and perhaps what alternatives there are not in every case but in some situations so what they what are they well effectively they're a uk incorporated company and they can be either limited or unlimited if they're non-trading it makes no sense at all to have a limited company because you're not going to have any liabilities in terms of your trading income so no need for that protection and the upside of that is of course you do not have to declare or the, or the accounts that you declare to company's house will not be in the public domain on a year-by-year -year basis there still will be an ultimate liquidation but not a year-by-year -year basis so it, it gives some kind of i suppose confidentiality to the structure they are there purely to carry on investment business, to generate investment returns in a tax efficient environment. Basically, can have a very simple structure, or that structure can be more complex. It depends exactly what the individual is trying to achieve. But basically, the normal situation is family members, typically, let's say mother and father, uh, incorporate fund 
the company. We'll see how in a minute. Um, and hold shares in for uh, shares in that company uh, for themselves, and maybe um, maybe uh, have other shares in that company that they give to other family members. They can be funded by cash. They can be funded by loans. Well, there's a lot of family investment companies are coming about purely because they were trading companies at some stage in the past. They have accumulated capital over a number of years, and a decision has been made not to distribute that capital and give a tax liability to the directors, but to continue to hold it in a structure that will give a certain tax liability. And of course, a corporation tax of 25% at a maximum is a lot lower than a potential income tax rate of 45% should the investor hold those assets directly. So next slide, please, Richard. So let's just go on to that and have a look at a little bit more detail how they actually uh, arrange. This is, again, a simple situation. And we can see we have, let's say, mother and father in the middle there on the left-hand side who have decided to invest money in their own company because they're attracted to, to this idea of some kind of a tax deferral mechanism and who make a loan to the investment company, a director's loan that's repayable on demand, it's interest-free, so they know they can access the capital at any stage. And basically, the company on its incorporation issues uh, two different types of shares. As you can see, there's growth shares there, but some of which has been assigned into a trust, and of course, some of which have been assigned to, let's say, their three children. Mother and father, in this particular instance, will keep all the income shares, which gives them the rights to any dividends that's actually been paid by that company. Now, underneath the company, what does it invest in? Well, it's got a wide range of investment choices like you and I have as an individual, and it can appoint a discretionary manager to oversee and to advise on those investments accordingly. Problem here straight away is if mother and father has the income shares, it's perfectly feasible, isn't it? for the company to declare a dividend of all its assets and pay that dividend out to mother and father. So if they were to do that, and bear in mind they've given the gross shares away to the children to trigger a potentially exempt transfer, what is the value of those shares? Well, it could be practically zero. And of course, you do really have problems in terms of underlying valuation. So straight away, I think it's, it's, it's fair common to say that family investment companies tend to work better where the individual um, founding members of that company do not need the right to income from dividends. They do not need to retain income shares. So straight away, we're looking for alternatives for that type of situation. Of course, if the company is funded by a loan, they can have an income, the company repaying the loan. But you know, it's, 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 it's one particular instance that's important. Next slide, please, Richard. And so if we look at the tax advantages, Family investment companies, I suppose, are often compared to investing in a trust. Why? Because giving shares away to trigger a pet, but having some control of underlying assets is a bit like transferring shares to a trust and having some control as a trustee. But the problem with transferring shares to a, excuse me, to a trust where you've got control as a trustee is that trust is invariably a relevant property trust. And of course, what that means is limitations on the amount that can be transferred. Anything over and above the nil rate band, of course, gives rise to a charge for a lifetime transfer. So it's a bit difficult. But of course, if money is in a relevant property trust, and it could be, let's say, in a loan trust, then effectively, let's compare the tax position. Well, the trust, of course, will tax the trust rates in terms of income it receives, 45% or 39.35 on dividends. 
Whereas a family investment company, what's the advantages there? Or well, maximum rate of corporation tax, it's 25%. So a big advantage. But it doesn't just stop there because any dividends that the family investment company receives itself from its underlying investments, if they're in UK shares, there's no further tax to pay. And so you can see how what the advantage is as far as the individual clients is concerned. Of course, we should say, of course, that any interest payments that it receives, so savings accounts, perhaps even rent, rental income, etc., will be liable to tax in full, so 25% corporation tax. And there may be some withholding tax on dividends overseas. Next slide, please, Richard. But the interesting point with family investment companies comes with how money is taken out of the structure. Because why do people invest? Well, people invest to make money, to accumulate capital. And at some stage, either they or their successors <coughs> will want to benefit from that asset. So you need to take looking at situations of extracting monies out of the structure. And here we have a situation. We assume if so we're taking the capital out of the money, there's two out of the company, there's two ways of taking the monies out. Either one, I suppose the loan repayment if it was set up with a loan in the first place. But the other two ways is either for dividends or on the ultimate liquidation of the company. If you're taking the money out as dividends, well, hey, presto, let's go back to those income slides that we mentioned earlier. What's the additional rate threshold? It's now come down to 125,000. And of course, it means that the dividend rates for anybody earning above that is now 39.35%. Now, next slide, please, Richard. So let's just look at this as an example. And let's take a very simplified example here. And what we've got, what we're assuming is we have a family investment company that has made a hundred thousand pounds of gains. It's actually realized those gains. It's reinvested its capital and it's going to distribute those gains to the shareholder or the shareholders of those income shares as a dividend. And so what we have this year, we know the corporation tax on that gain is 25%. And so that net gain now comes down to 75,000 pounds. As far as the distribution to the shareholder is concerned, we have a dividend allowance of £1,000, so the next net taxable gain in his or her hands is now £74,000. Now, let's assume that is all paid out as that dividend, and let's assume that the shareholder is an additional rate taxpayer. Take off the 39.35% dividend tax. And the net proceeds in the shareholders' hands of that 74, 75,000 net distribution, if you like, is now 45,881 pounds. And that gives rise to an effective tax rate on that gain that was generated by the company of some 54.1%. Now, I wouldn't like to put a lot of money on this and say it is definitely the highest rate of income tax in, this, in the country, because it's, oh, well, no, it's not, is it? Because of course we've got things like personal allowances and things like that. But it's an extremely high rate and a lot higher rate than most individuals actually imagine or think they will be paying. Next slide, please, Richard. So the alternative is for people to leave me in the company and then at some stage in the future to liquidate the company, which is fine. And of course, the beauty of that is if you're liquidating the company, then you are giving rise to a capital gains tax on the sale of those shares on liquidation of those shares. But of course, things that we've got to take into account, no entrepreneur's relief, because it's not a trading company straight away, 
you've got obviously this annual exemption is available but that's been reduced and it's been reduced further where is it going to stop and of course cgt rates will be those applicable at the time of liquidation when is that going to be you've also got things like the appointment of a liquidator the time element the fact that it's got to be uh, the liquidation has to be advertised for the london gazette you've got final reports that have got to be registered for the company's house and at that point those reports are now in the public domain next slide please richard and so the actual problems if you like with liquidation is if the company has disposed of an underlying assets and given rise to a corporation tax liability on its gain and then the company is liquidated and it gives rise to capital gains tax liability on the increase in value of the company's shares you're looking at a double tax position you're looking at a potential liability of 25 percent plus 20 percent on that extra gain and again that's not quite as attractive is it as what it sounds at outside of course so the problems in this area is all the shareholders whether they hold income shares capital shares or whatever they're all subject to the same investment objectives because it's the company that's making the investments. And it doesn't matter whether one of those shareholders is one year old or 96 year old. It's the same investment objective. And of course, future changes legislation. Again, this cannot be ruled out. Even if you're a non-DOM, these will only work if you are paying or able to, able to pay and benefit from the remittance basis of tax. And of course, this current funding model, I suppose, or one of the current funding models of loan uh, of funding by loans, this loan repayments. Well, again, in some circles, it's seen as slightly aggressive and, you know, maybe a, a, a potentially opportunities or care need to be taken going forward. And so how does investment bonds compare as an alternative to the family investment company? Not in all situations, but in some situations. Well, the structure, well, the investor is the policyholder as opposed to being a shareholder with the FIC. Tax deferral, both available, but potentially better with an investment bond. Why? Because it offers tax-free switching. It offers, there's no corporation tax on any switch within the investment bond, as we know. In terms of dividends received, well, they're both tax-free, apart from potential withholding tax on any foreign dividends. So everything's all well, very similar there, apart from the gross return of the investment bond on, on any changes to underlying strategy. Big advantage. As far as the investor is concerned, well, obviously, any distributions from the VIC is subject to income tax. It's a dividend. Dividend allowance has gone down. Dividend rates, potentially 39.35%. With the offshore investment bond, we have this loved and often uh, overquoted, I suppose, 5% allowance available. In terms of portability, what happens if you move country with a, a family investment company? Well, in lots of situations, it could be taxed as a foreign company, uh, a controlled foreign company. Because with an investment bond, particularly a life insurance bond, it can offer portability in certain jurisdictions. If the company shares are assigned or gifted to another individual, that immediately triggers a capital gains tax liability. It's a disposal. Of course, a bond or segments of the bond could be assigned easily to other individuals. And if by way of gift, do not give rise to a tax charge. And of course, what it means is in terms of the final extraction of profits and gains, 
or the bond is charged with the machine, top slicing, et cetera, et cetera, apply. So next slide, please, Richard. I, I guess it is not a direct Delft tax, although many think of it that way, but of course the bond can be a disregarded asset from a care fees point if you can't it, whereas I'd imagine that family investment company is not going to be. Now, definitely, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know for certain, but I think you're absolutely right there. I, I would, uh, I'll be surprised if it was, yeah. Okay, so let's just now finally, before we get on to inheritance tax, I'm, I'm probably going to move on here, I do apologize, is that uh, let's look at the family investment company that is funded by way of loan, because that is interesting. Next slide, please, Richard. Because if we were to look at the attractions of funding investment company by way of loan, it's really to give the lender access to that outstanding loan at any time. Isn't it? That's, that's all it is there for, really. It's that loan is, is there on a repayable on demand basis. It's there on an interest-free basis. And effectively, it's very similar to funding a loan trust and a loan trust as an alternative. Now, there will be another session, especially on loan trusts. I'll warn you in advance. But the beauty of, of, of comparing a loan trust to a family investment company funding this way is it can give distinct benefits. Next slide, please, Richard. And of course, we know the benefits in terms of inheritance tax, etc. All the growth that is achieved, that it's going to be completely outside the estate. And things like flexibility can come into the equation such that a loan can be gifted, part of the loan can be gifted, it can be waived as and when the individual uh, has that requirement. So it gives complete, complete flexibility in terms of planning going forward. But let's compare them specifically, next slide, with loan trusts as an alternative to a family investment company funded by way of loan. So on creation, both exactly the same. The growth in the FIC, if the individual who's made the loan does not have a shareholding in that FIC, then there's no part of that FIC inside of the estate. So all growth outside the estate. Well, that's exactly the same with the loan trust, isn't it? Of course, the outstanding loan in both cases is still part of his or her estate. But again, we can do lots of things in terms of succession. We can write that loan off or we can gift it. Same in both situations. In terms of the online tax structure, we've seen the figures 25% corporation tax, of course, a discretionary loan trust with an underlying investment bond. Well, you've got gross royalty underlying assets, but if you've got a discretionary trust, then potentially you've got relevant property charges, so periodic charges going forward. In terms of the underlying wrapper, well, obviously, if the FIC invests in collectives, there's no tax on the dividends, uh, or, uh, but any savings interest or would be subject to corporation tax. Uh, that should be 25% there, the new rate. With the offshore bond, of course, we know it's got largely gross roll-up. Distribution, we've been through that. Dividends are taxed on the individual in terms of a discretionary loan trust in line investment bond. Then the repayment of that loan is capital back to the individual. If distributions of growth are made to the beneficiaries, then, of course, it could be via the 5% or it could be via segment assignation. The control is in the hands of the directors and the trustees. And on a final wind of course, we've seen the situation with family investment companies, and of course, with discretionary loan trust, well, we have a charge with that, but that can be planned for, can't it? It can be assigned to individuals, part of it can be assigned, it's savings income, the usual things apply. So lots of different advantages that the loan trust can offer. I thought that was quite interesting just to pop in, because as I say, the, the, the thing that's happening out there in that marketplace, is that uh, a lot of these things are now being recommended for, I would say, very, very low investments indeed. Right, finally, changes to inheritance tax from April of this year. 
And the first sight you say, oh, what changes? I didn't know there was any. And I suppose, well, there has been, and obviously that was the pension one, which was a big plus point. But in terms of everything else, I think everything else was exactly the same, wasn't it? So nil rate bands stay the same. Uh, that means the maximum nil rate band and transfer nil rate band stay the same. Residence nil rate band, yeah, you've guessed it, stay the same. The maximum transfer stay the same. Changes were, however, that the frozen uh, that the, these 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 allowances have now been frozen for an extra two years, up to up to and including tax years 2027-28. So what does that mean? Next slide, please, Richard. Well, we've got to again look at these impact of stealth taxes. Now it won't be a surprise to most of you. But the last year that the nil rate band itself was increased was back in 2009-2010. So that was when it was increased to £325,000. Now, let's again, let's put in an assumed increase in the nil rate band. Let's assume it should have increased at only 2.5% per annum. If that was the case, it would now be worth some £459,000, which means that the extra the extra inheritance tax that's being collected just by freezing that nil rate band is some £53,600 per individual. And again, we can do exactly the same with the, with the residence nil rate band. Obviously, it's 2020-21 when the last increase was. But again, it comes out, same argument, £5,200. Which means that there is effectively some fifty-eight thousand eight hundred pounds of extra inheritance tax being payable on clients' estates who died today, over what it should have been had those allowances been increasing. And of course, for a married couple, that equates, to, if they're using the transferable nil rate band, to some one hundred and seventeen thousand six hundred pounds extra. And so, what does that mean? Well, the next slide, please, Richard. It means that for clients who can, they've got to consider what choices are available to them. And the choices that they've got is really to use any available nil rate band, I suppose, during lifetime first, live seven years, use it again, use it again. Or if that is not an option because they cannot afford to gift those assets away, or, you know, from a psychological point of view, perhaps is to use the nil rate band potentially on the first death rather than effectively leaving it to the spouse, to the civil partner, and for them to benefit from that nil rate band uplift. Because at least what that means is by doing it this way, then the nil rate band that they use on that first death can be invested and can grow. If they're just leaving it to the surviving spouse and they're getting the 100% uplift of their nil rate band and the nil rate band stays the same, there's not benefit from that growth at all. It is effectively frozen going forward. So what, next slide please Richard, so what was a fantastic benefit some years ago when the transferable nil rate band was introduced because it all of a sudden meant that the nil rate band wasn't lost on the first death as it was previously and it was only the wealthy that could afford to use the nil rate band by setting assets onto trust is now losing its real impact. It's becoming of less value. Next slide, please, Richard. Um, and what we've got in here, and I've said very conscious of time now, there's a couple of slides, we'll just go through them, Richard, very quickly, is to showing how the transferable nil rate band works and what the 
uh, allowances can be. And basically, what it is important point here is if somebody has an unused nil rate band on their debt or part of the nil rate band on their debt, it's expressed as a percentage of the available nil rate, rate band at that time, and that percentage will uplift their spouse or their partner's nil rate band when they die. And of course, it can be up to a maximum of 100%. So if we just go on a couple of slides, please, Richard. And uh, let's just, I think, let's go to slide 48, if we can. And again, all these are, so back one, that's it. Um, and again, these slides are, are all, all in the deck, obviously, for you know, templates and so on. So what does that mean? Well, let's take an example here. Going back to that tax year 2009-2010, we said that was the last time the nil rate band was available, was increased, £325,000. If we took the, F, the, the FTSE All Share Index at that date, it stood at some 2964 The 1st of March this year, nil rate band exactly the same. The FTSE All Share Index at 1st of March this year, remember it's been through periods of extreme volatility, it's now standing at 4,326, which means that if a client had invested in a nil rate fund, then his available nil rate fund from 2009, 2010 in a FTSE all share index, then the value of that investment would now be worth some 474,000 pounds. Contrast that to not using it, transferring it to the surviving spouse or civil partner, the value of that transfer, 300. 25,000. Now, if they've been lucky to be able to use that during lifetime, then of course that full 474,000 is outside of their mm -hmm. estate. So the message is there is it is now, I think, very, very much more important to use the nil rate band as soon as the client feels comfortable in doing so. So, i.e., during their lifetime, if possible, why? Because they may get another nil rate band seven years down the line. And it's still they benefit from the growth of the online investment. But they can't do it during lifetime. Then to do it on the first death, if possible. And even if that is just by settling the monies onto a discretionary will trust with a surviving spouse or a civil partner as a beneficiary. So the trustees can actually give him or her capital if needed. At least that money's outside the estate and it can be invested and it can grow free of inheritance tax going forward. So if we go on to the next slide, please, Richard. And then we'll go on to the next one, and I think we'll probably call it a day there. So obviously, capital redemption bonds, well, they're one of the investment media for offshore bonds. The other, of course, is life assurance policies. Uh, why are they attractive? Well, because of the gross roll-up that they offer. But also, of course, the ability to plan for these various taxes now or in the future. So they can be easily assigned either to trust or individuals. They can even be converted to discounted gift trusts at some stage in the future. So they really are truly deferred discounted gift trusts in the case of Hutmus. Or they can be assigned to various other types of trust, including reversionary interest trusts. So hopefully, um, I've gone a little bit over time, I do apologise. And there's one or two slides that basically if you can have a quick look at your, uh, at your leisure. Um, yeah, hopefully I've given one or two reasons why a bond uh, is uh, definitely worthy of greater consideration following the changes announced. Yeah, that was great, Steve. I think just to reiterate, one of the final points you made there is that a lot of people think you only get one nil rate band. 
you don't you can have more than one nil rate ban if you keep using the, the, the exemption every seven years and that, that's a very good piece of long-term ist planning uh that, that can be done there um that was brilliant um so as we said at the start you can download a copy of those slides uh, and we'll put a link in the description and there is one hour cpd available as well and as steve mentioned uh later in this series we're going to look at loan trusts and discounted gift trusts as well in a bit more detail there but now thank you very much steve for sharing your time at wisdom and knowledge as always and we'll hope to see you all again very soon goodbye Okay, goodbye.